You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound Off. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where we are officially obsessed with process. But on this program, we're obsessed with policy. Now that congressional committees have begun pouring the foundation for reconciliation, the bulk of the Biden economic agenda will be joined today by one of the president's nearest economic advisors, Heather Boucher. And we'll talk about the effort as well to lower drug prices with Congressman Scott Peters, a Democrat from California who earlier today voted no on a proposal to do just that. And we'll ask him why. And as we try to make sense of all of this, the taxes and spending, the shower of numbers from Capitol Hill, we'll be joined later by Steve Ellis from the Bipartisan Taxpayers for common sense. And of course, the panel, the classic today, we have Bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us. It's the fastest hour in politics, and we're just getting started. President Biden reinforced the message today in a speech to the nation from the East Room, the message on economic equality. This is our moment to deal working people back into the economy. This is our moment to prove the American people that their government works for them, not just for the big corporations, but those at the very top. Speaking to proposed tax hikes for corporations and the wealthy and tax cuts for the working class, all part of Democrats' reconciliation plan that is being crafted as we speak. And joining us in a moment at what the president calls an inflection point for our economy will be Heather Boucher, member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And as soon as she's on the line, we'll be happy to bring her on the program. It's an inflection point, as the president called it, beginning with rewriting much of the tax code to get more money. What he calls corporations paying their fair share, big corporations and the wealthy. But the rates that we've seen from Congress, to remind everyone, are below the level proposed by the White House, and we'll talk about that with Heather Boucher in a moment. The president today called out those who have not been paying any taxes. Here's what he said. How is it possible that 55 of the largest corporations in this country 
paid zero dollars in federal income taxes. They made over 40 billion in the year 2020, and they paid zero. Think about that. Zero dollars in federal taxes on $40 billion in profits. So let's bring in the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Welcome back. Of course, they're with us for the hour here, and we're going to be hearing a lot of voices as we move through the Sound On program. And I want to start with what the president was talking about here. Uh, Jeannie, we've, we've heard the work that was done from the Ways and Means Committee. We've heard the tax rates that have been established for corporations, for capital gains, for wealthy individuals. They still fall short of President Biden's plan, however. Uh, can we assume that he's good with that? Obviously, it's going to affect the, the final price tag. You know, I think he probably is thinking at this point that his entire focus has got to be in prodding and pushing these progressive and these more moderate Democrats to stay together and toe the line. You know, unlike President Obama in 2009, he can't afford to lose any of them, maybe three in the House, but that's it. It is such a small margin. I think that is his major focus. So to answer your question, I do think that what they came up with is he's probably feeling like it's about as good as he's going to get. And Mm -hmm. still we're seeing drop off amongst some moderates. And I know you're going to be getting to this, but I think the prescription drug pricing example is what's going to be coming down the line and the president is trying to hold the hold the wall there and make sure that doesn't keep happening rick davis why does the president speak to the nation today from the east room kind of a formal feeling address big room full of reporters calling this the inflection point is it because committees had a deadline yesterday he was up all night worried about it what's what's the motivation Well, you know, as you point out, 13 committees did their work yesterday as required under the Reconciliation Budget Act uh, that uh, passed in the House. And and I think he didn't get what he wanted. And so I think he had to enter the stage. He had to use the power of the presidency, his bully pulpit, to get into the act of lobbying his own party in Congress to try and get this bill moving forward right now. Uh, There are a number of critical aspects of it, both on the tax side and on the spending side, that uh, are being debated actively and opposed by members of his own party, either, as uh, Jeannie pointed out, by the progressives or by the moderates. And this is his chance of getting into the game. Uh, It really started last night, yesterday, with meetings with uh, members of the uh, sort of uh, uh, the the moderate caucus in the Democratic Party in the Senate, uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Uh, but today it was all about the House, all about these reports, and all about the policy. And, and you know, his point about all these corporations not paying taxes, it's not because there isn't a corporate tax cut. It's because the tax code is full of all these loopholes that allow them to uh, zero out their taxes. And so the one thing I actually think has been underestimated in the debate is uh, to have the tax writing committees, Ways and Means, actually close some of these loopholes, which mm-hmm. they have not done as part of reconciliation. Rick and Jeannie are with us for the hour. Standby, guys, is a perfect place uh, to bring in Heather Boucher, of course, the member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, in her debut appearance here on Bloomberg Sound On. Heather, it's great to have you here, and I wonder if you could bring us in on, on that particular question here. We've, we've heard from the president just as recently as today. He isolated 55 of the, the largest companies paying no taxes while middle-class Americans pay their fair share, as he calls it. Should this not begin simply with IRS enforcement, getting people to pay what they're supposed to pay? Well, hi, Joe. It's great to be here. Uh, thank you for, for having me on. Um, of course. And, I mean, what a 
What a great question to start with. I mean, this is this really gets to the heart of the issue that, you know, we need to be rewarding um, work and not wealth. We need to make sure that businesses pay their fair share of taxes. And we know that we've systemically um, uh, not given the IRS the resources they need to enforce the laws on the books. And so the president's proposal, you know, really was grounded in the idea that we definitely need to do that. We need to make sure that the IRS has the enforcement agents, that they are focused on uh, enforcing the tax code, especially among those at the top of the income ladder. And so that is a, a really important goal because, um, you know, if you have a tax law and people aren't, aren't paying their fair share, then that harms us all. Right. Uh, the rates that we have seen from Congress beyond enforcement here for the corporate tax rate for capital gains are below the level proposed by the White House. Should they be higher? Well, you know, the president has made his views clear when he laid out his plans that certainly they should be higher than what Congress is uh, putting on the table right now. Um, you know, but the separation of powers, the um, the process is now in Congress's hands. But the president and certainly the Treasury Secretary uh, did want to see higher rates. You've spent the bulk of your career focused on economic equality. That's where we began this hour. That's what I'd like to hear about from you, because that is essentially what the president is pitching here, right? That we are at an inflection point, and, and it almost feels like he's talking about climate change. Like, if we go beyond this point, there's no coming back. Is there enough in this reconciliation bill, and I'm sure that you had a lot to do with helping to craft some of these ideas with the president, is there enough to achieve what you see as economic equality, and how long would it take? Well, I think that there is enough in the president's broad agenda so you look at the combination of the bipartisan deal and the reconciliation package, and you have significant investments in people and families all across the country. Your policies are going to support family economic well-being, giving middle-class families the tax cut that they need, making sure that we're bringing down costs that families face on a day-in, day-out basis, and doing that through supporting our care infrastructure, child care, elder care, um, you know, making health care more affordable – while also, you know, on the climate side, making sure that as we make this transition to clean energy, that those costs are not being uh, disproportionately borne by consumers or making sure that we're doing this in a way that's smart and efficient, that we're fostering innovation, and that um, we're making sure that consumers won't have to deal with uh, too high costs as we go through that transition. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are really um, important. But let me be really clear. The core to the president's agenda are these taxes um, being raised at the very top. You know, his pledge, which he said more times than anybody can count, to not raise taxes on anyone making under $400,000 a year, but to focus on uh, rewarding work and not wealth, focusing on those taxes at the top, focusing on fixing those distortions in the tax code put in there by the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that encouraged firms to shift profits overseas and, and all the rest. Um, that, too, will help to address inequality by putting a lid on it at the top alongside his robust agenda around competition, which is not a part of these legislative packages, but is really core to this agenda in terms of inequality as well. Um, so, so there's a, a number of different aspects, but it's all focused on the same goal, which is to grow and strengthen America's middle class. Of course, Heather, none of this comes easily on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, and we've been watching lawmakers grind through this. Bloomberg is reporting that Speaker Nancy Pelosi is bracing Democrats for the prospect that portions of the bill, this is the, the larger reconciliation bill, may not survive in the Senate. 
sent a letter uh, to her members reminding lawmakers there are certain limitations, she wrote, in terms of Senate rules. And she was pointing to uh, immigration reform, the Dreamers, as well as some climate-related initiatives. Does it not have the same impact if these components don't make it through the Senate? Are we not making good then on that inflection point, or will you take what you can get? (laughs) Well... You know, the president has made it clear that inaction is not an option, um, that these are all priorities that we need to push them through. But, you know, we have to we have to help Congress uh, do what they can do to pass what they can and to make it the best legislation that they can possibly do. So I remain very optimistic that we will get something that comes close to what the president has proposed, if not, you know, there um, and that it will make a difference in families, everyday lives. And it'll make a difference in creating good jobs all across the country and keeping costs down. So I think that, you know, together, this is really going to push the ball forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, reconciliation is a tricky way to do legislation. Um, there's a lot of rules going on in the Senate with what you can and can't do. Um, but that's the reality of uh, only having a, a 50 Senate majority. That's for sure. Reconciliation is a messy way that we, we should get a bumper sticker uh, printed for for you on that. Heather Boucher, all of these plans, let's say the whole thing goes through three and a half trillion, the rainbow package, everything you wanted. If we cannot beat COVID, though. Do these plans end up having the same impact or, or are you now planning for a world in which COVID is part of our long term reality? Well, there's a yes and answer to this. I mean, first of all, I think we all thought that once we had a vaccine, we would be further along, that more Americans would have taken the opportunity by now to have gotten vaccinated. Um, And, you know, we know that that is really a part of the challenge, you know, keeping COVID contained um, and moving forward. And that is certainly uh, the president's, you know, that has been the president's top agenda item since he took office. Mm -hmm. But let me be very clear that the packages that Congress is talking about right now, these are not short-term rescue packages. These are investments in the future of our country. They're investments that are going to be playing out over time. And, um, Uh, tax increases at the top that will play out over time. So, you know, we have to get through this recovery now. And, you know, we've made a lot of progress. Um, We're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs a month. And we've got inflation ticking down a little bit this month. You know, things are looking like they are moving in the right direction on the economy. Um, And, you know, there's there's new policies out there to help everyone get those uh, vaccines and to contain COVID. But this reconciliation and infrastructure deal really are about laying the tracks for the kind of economy that we want to build back better to, you know, the kind of economy where we're focused on you know, green energy, where we're focused on those jobs that are going to come from this climate, uh, the new uh, transformation in uh, uh, how we produce energy and making it more climate friendly. It is um, incorporating all of these issues around care and, and how to support the middle class that are going to be with us for the longer haul. Heather Boucher of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, I do thank you for being with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. I know it's been a busy one at the White House, and great to have Heather's voice as a part of this. Another voice that we want to bring you is Scott Peters. This is a moderate Democrat from California and was one of three today, one of three moderates who voted no on a drug pricing proposal that was embraced by progressives. The idea here was to lower prices, as I read on the terminal, empower the government to demand lower prices for medicine while limiting future drug price increases based on inflation. We wanted to know why. 
And so we go to Congressman Peters right now. Welcome, Congressman, to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for having me, Joe. So you're making news today, and I'm wondering why you said no to this approach to regulating drug prices, something that President Biden has talked about quite a lot. Yes, and I think, by the way, I I think we should regulate drug prices. I don't think there's any daylight between me and any Democrat who wants to see lower out-of-pocket costs for patients. I have a problem with what the um, current draft, the HR3, the Democrats' bill does, with something called international reference pricing, Mm -hmm. which imposes a penalty of 95% on anyone who doesn't agree to the government's price. In the future, if if you have that kind of disincentive at the back end, no one's going to invest in drug discovery at the front end. And very important, the National Institute of Health, basic public research, it's $40 billion. The private sector spent $100 billion in, in 2018 on drug discovery at no risk to taxpayers. That's where we develop drugs in this country. And I think we should lower drug prices, put a cap on insulin, you know, negotiate with pharma, take their profits to pay for it. But let's leave in place the incentives that give people hope, uh, these patients who are living with these awful diseases, that we're going to be, be able to come up with cure someday. That's the inf- infrastructure we have. That's the ecosystem we have. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So you're concerned this would stifle innovation. Right. We're, we're... Yeah, and it's not just me. It's not just me. It's also the Congressional Budget Office. It's 50 patient advocacy groups who advocate for patients with some of the worst diseases like cancer, ALS, HIV, Alzheimer's. They all are very worried about this approach in H.R. 3, mm-hmm. and they want a different approach. And so that's what I've tried to come up with, and I'm trying to be constructive. Uh, and I think we've come up with a good, a good product. Are you talking with leadership? Or are you talking with Speaker Pelosi about an alternative proposal? Yeah, and so we, we actually introduced an uh, alternative proposal. Uh, we dropped a bill this week that does almost all the same things that H.R. 3 does from the perspective of the patient or the consumer. It lowers out-of-pocket costs by clawing back um, profits from pharma for, for the increases in prices that they've made since 2016. We put a cap of $3,100 a year on for most people, most seniors, on how much they can pay for, for drugs. But if it goes down to $1,500 for people who have, have lower incomes, a $50 a month cap on insulin, so you don't have to pay more than that. And basically, we track what HR3 does for patients. What we don't do is take so much money out of the industry to fund other things that we discourage the development of new cures for people who are facing these awful diseases. So we can, we can have both. We can both lower drug prices and preserve those incentives uh, for cures. In the context uh, that's of what my bill would do. In the context of this reconciliation bill, uh, Bloomberg at least is reporting Bloomberg is reporting the the measure would save some 600 billion dollars. So without it, there's a shortfall here. Would would your alternative bill provide as much savings? No. My my bill we estimate my bill provides about 200 billion dollars of savings, which is uh, nothing to shake a stick at, Joe. I mean, I think um I would never shake a stick at $200 billion, uh, Congressman. No. <laughs> but I wonder, does that also imply that maybe you think $3.5 trillion is too much money? Do you need all that savings? You know what? Uh, we already know as we sit here today that the bill's not going to be $3.5 trillion. We've heard that from the Senate. Any one senator can cut that number. Uh, senator Manchin has already said one point five. It might be lower than that. So we're talking in an academic way about this today. Yeah. It would be my preference that we slow down. We ought to know first how much money we have to invest, and the Senate's going to tell us that. And then let's all make choices together, the House and the Senate, about what our priorities are. If people ask me about $3.5 trillion. We know already that it's not going to be $3.5 trillion. And even if it was a trillion or a trillion two, that's still historic. 
that's a historic investment in America's future. So I'm, I'm not embarrassed about that. I think we should be proud of it. In addition to a trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill, I mean, that would give us quite a record to run on. Talking with Congressman Scott Peters on Bloomberg Sound On. How do you feel in general, then, about this whole process uh, that we've been trying awfully hard to, to cover, Congressman? And sometimes it's difficult. It changes by the hour. And we've had a real tug of war between moderates and progressives in your party, even coming down to the order in which uh, you guys vote on infrastructure versus reconciliation. Are you pleased with the form that this process has taken? Well, I'm a little bit frustrated because You know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that the Senate negotiated with the president, that took five and a half months with a trillion dollars. We're trying to program three and a half trillion dollars in five weeks, solve all the problems. We're really taking ourselves uh, and the representation we promised to our constituents out of that decision-making process. So, yeah, I'm frustrated with it, but I'm not trying to I'm not trying to um, be an obstruction on every single issue. Sure. I've got other issues with with the bill, but, you know, I have drawn a, a pretty hard line on. HR3 because of what the patient groups and what the CBO has has told us about the future of curing diseases here in in America. We're fighting to, by the way, to bring supply chain capabilities in pharma back on shore. We should not be taking actions today that would encourage this high-end drug discovery that creates cures for patients to go overseas, and that's what I'm afraid we'll do. So that's why on this, we're taking a hard line. I'm willing to work to, to make sure, and I put in the hard work to make sure that we come up with something that works. Um, I'm staying in D.C. this weekend uh, in case anyone wants to meet with me. I'm happy to do it. But I just think that the path that we were on was an unwise one, and and, um, we can do better. Are there other issues that would make you a no vote to the broader plan? Uh, I haven't seen seen what's coming, obviously, so I I put the caveat in there that I haven't seen the final bill. I would say a couple of my priorities are that it should be paid for, and that's to the credit of the president and, and the speaker. They both said it's going to be paid for, so... I think it's appropriate. We, you know, we under President Trump, the, the annual deficits are nearly a trillion dollars, and, and we have to deal with that. So I don't want to add to that. Something tells uh, me we're second, going to be talking about this in October. You would you agree? Well, I do, and I also would just say too that there's an effort to expand um, Medicare coverage uh, to dental and to vision and hearing, mm-hmm. and I think that's great. I think that we should prioritize people who are not on coverage now. So I I, I like the idea of adding coverage for Medicare, but not before we make sure that everyone who's not covered is covered. And I think uh, those are a couple of priorities that I have. But um, I've made those all known to the leadership and hope that they're considered. Congressman Scott Peters, Democrat from California, thanks for bringing us in this whole process here. And thanks for talking with us on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much, Joe. Be well. Peek behind the curtain. That was the real thing. Gives you a real sense of the push and pull behind the scenes all within the Democratic Party. And so we turn it to the panel for the remaining moment that we have left here. Uh, Rick Davis, I'm just thinking timeline. We're going to be talking about this around Halloween once again, right? Oh, Halloween into the Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving into Christmas, potentially. So it's the holiday package. You want to you want to gear it to which holiday it comes on. uh, So this is what we fight about at the Thanksgiving table, Jeannie. Yeah, and it's going to go into Christmas. This is oh, going to be infrastructure on. winter, Joe Matthew. We're Do you both believe it. that? It's not done by I, the end of the calendar year. I, I At this point, I don't see it being done, and that's a big problem for Democrats because we are dangerously close then to the midterm, and we're already seeing moderates peel off, as you, as you just heard. Yeah, well, peel off or at least, you know, Take peel off some dollars on this thing. The final price tag, Rick, it may end up actually in that Joe Manchin area by the time we're done. 
Yeah, I think Congressman Peter said it right. He's like, I'm not embarrassed by by uh, a 1.5 trillion dollar right. bill, right? I mean, like, or 200 billion in savings. Exactly. So I think that uh, I think that's where you're going to head. The, the, the real question is, how hard are some of these? Uh, progressives going to dig in and how long it takes to get them back on board. We'll spend more time on this later with Rick and Jeannie, the classic panel with us for the hour on Sound On, brought to you by Barish and McGarry, lawyers for the 9-11 community. For 20 years, they've been fighting for those who continue to get sick from the 9-11 toxins. Free health care and compensation available. Visit 911victims.com. Up next, watchdog Steve Ellis from Taxpayers for Common Sense. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to Boston, Bloomberg 106.1, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Democrats have laid out their tax plan, and they could be about to get into a game of chicken over the debt ceiling. We'll see. Either way, the budget watchdog is barking. We'll talk about all this next with Steve Ellis, president of the group Taxpayers for Common Sense. If the last half hour here on Sound On taught us anything, lawmakers still have a lot to figure out. Deadlines be damned. Reconciliation could take the rest of the year, according to our panel, maybe into next year. And then there's the debt ceiling. As I find the headline on the terminal, McConnell rebuffs Yellen on debt limit, says up to Democrats. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised when I woke up to this after what we talked about yesterday. Mitch McConnell rejecting an appeal by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Eric Wasson writing on the terminal. Made in a phone call. That must have been a fun call. For Republicans to join with Democrats in raising the federal debt ceiling, leaving the two sides at odds with potentially weeks to go until the limit is breached. An expert on this and all of the stories we've been talking about with tax and spend is Steve Ellis, president of Taxpayers for Common Sense, with us right now on the program. Steve, it's great to have you. I know that you have the fiscal cliff notes on this, as I heard on your podcast. And so let's get into it here. The debt ceiling according to the Treasury Secretary, is going to be at uh, its limit. We're going to be bumping into that ceiling the middle of next month. Do you believe, Mitch McConnell, that he will not vote to raise the debt ceiling and this is, in fact, Democrats' problem? Well, hey, Joe, thank you very much for having me on. And um, it's, I mean, it's clear this is some brinksmanship that's going on, and it's a question of who's going to blink and who's going to own this increase in, in, in the debt limit. And basically, we already set the debt limit 
at the end of July. Um, and so now uh, Secretary Yellen has been doing so-called extraordinary measures mm-hmm. to make sure we don't breach that cap through the revenues that we get in and various not paying for different stuff and sort of all sorts of smoke and mirrors. Let's talk about this just to back up a moment and qualify sure. what we are talking about. Steve, because lawmakers like to play with this, it's, a, it's an easy sort of political tool. But the fact of the matter is, this is paying for spending that's already been had, right? And as opposed to lawmakers who suggest raising the debt ceiling will give us a new credit card to go buying stuff. We're paying off the old credit card with this hike in the ceiling. That, that's exactly right, Joe. I mean, so the, the current debt limit um, was set in the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2019. And basically in that bill, they said, OK, we're just going to ignore the debt limit and spend until July 31st, 2021. Um, in that time frame, if you go back to the numbers, at the time they set that back in August of 2019, the debt was at $22.3 trillion. By the time President Biden was sworn into office in January of this year, it was $27.7 trillion, so more than a $5 trillion increase. And then when they actually set the debt limit, so when they basically had to put a hard cap on it on July 31st, it was $28.4 trillion. So really, They've racked up some spending, I mean, $700 billion in that time frame. But you're absolutely right that so much of the, the, the debt has been what has been spent well before um, the Democrats were in power and certainly in the White House. Not to, by the way, you know, suggest that we're strangers to politics around here. But when we hear Republicans say that, we're, you know, this has to do with Democrats need to spend more. This is, in fact, the Trump credit card, as Nancy Pelosi talks about, that we're paying off here. So how come it's always a partisan issue, Steve? Well, because whoever is in power, you know, is recognizes that uh, this has to get done. I mean, we cannot afford to default on the debt. Um, you're dealing with the full faith and credit of the U.S. Treasury. And so the people who are the party that's in the minority recognizes the majority is going to own this um, yeah. if something happens. And so they are willing and I, in an irresponsible manner to me, um, they're willing to put all the play brinksmanship and put all the responsibility on the majority. Congressman Jim Clyburn got into this today with David Weston on the Bloomberg program, Balance of Power, as he looked back at how we got here today. We borrowed the money to pay for that tax cut. That's a debt that was incurred by the previous administration that we have now got to pay for. And I'm glad that the Democrats are willing to belly up to the bar and pay for it. And Mitch McConnell and all the other Republicans are as much responsible, if not most so, because we didn't vote for that big tax cut. The Republicans did. And that's the majority whip speaking there, Steve, as you well know. Can't whip votes, though, uh, when you're looking for Republicans. So many wonder if Democrats are going to be left to handle this alone. Well, and, and it's a it's a tightrope, Joe. I mean, I mean, you figure you look at there is basically no majority in the Senate. I mean, you have mm-hmm. the 50 plus the vote from the vice president and then you have a three vote majority in the House. So they can't afford to lose anybody on this as well. Um, and so, so what happens if they even, don't hike it, I guess, is the question. We've had lawmakers, Republican lawmakers suggest that there's still more cash out there, that this is not the crisis that Democrats make it out to be. Well, you can only play games with this 
for so long. I mean, the limit is set. It's at $28.4 trillion. And so Secretary Yellen has been not spending money in certain areas, and we're obviously mm-hmm. getting in some revenue as we go along. Um, but there are hard payments. You know, there's military retirement payments that have to go in at the beginning of October. Um, you know, you have $150 billion less that they can play with. And so your question, though, about what happens if we if we don't do it, if we actually breach the, the debt limit, that's yeah. uncharted territory. And that's a scary place to be because that's really the full faith and credit of the U.S. Treasury. And what that means is people want to buy our debt. And I mean, people, other, you know, individuals, foreign countries, they buy our debt and we're able to um, service that debt at a really low rate because it's so it's 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 trusted. And so if as soon as you go, even if you get too close to that edge, but if you go over that edge, particularly all of a sudden the cost of servicing our debt is going to go up dramatically. So default is real, and I've got less than a minute here, Steve. You're not just worried about a potential credit downgrade. We would, in fact, default. How long would that take? You know, I mean, that could be, you know, it's all depending on what is what what is really real. I mean, obviously, Secretary Yellen is trying to get the Republicans to go along with this and to do this sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're talking sometime in October, it looks like, is when this is going to be, uh, you know, kind of hit the D-Day, the debt day. Wow. D-Day is looming. That's Steve Ellis, president of Taxpayers for Common Sense, bipartisan group. He's got a great podcast, too. And we thank you, Steve, for talking with us on Bloomberg Sound On. We reassemble the panel next to make sense of this. Rick and Jeannie coming in. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending part of your Thursday with us on Bloomberg Sound On. We call it Little Friday here because it is the fastest hour in politics. And by God, we're almost there with the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Fascinating conversation uh, with the group Taxpayers for Common Sense about the debt ceiling. Guys, we've talked about this up and down. Jim Clyburn there again, the latest Democrat in leadership to say, no, this was Trump's credit card. Why should we pay for it? But it is Rick Davis looking like this is going to be Democrats problem. The, The question is the vehicle, right? How Will they choose to raise the debt ceiling? Does this end up in reconciliation? Yeah, this is the classic. Elections have consequences. Now you're in charge and you have to make the decision. And and, and look, I mean, they missed a great opportunity to put it into reconciliation uh, when they got the reconciliation package passed in the House and introduced in the Senate. So, uh, sure, uh, the Rules Committee can attach this to the uh, vehicle coming out of the House. They have a lot of options. Uh but it seems they're still intent on trying to do a standalone bill with Republican votes and uh, the efforts by Janet Yellen and, and, and the president to try and get Republicans on board has faced stiff opposition from the minority leader in the Senate. And I can't imagine that's going to change anytime soon. So uh, I think this is the first big challenge that this administration is going to have fiscally. And it'll be interesting to see where they wind up on it. Did the party miss an opportunity, as Rick suggests, Jeannie? You know, I don't know if they missed an opportunity um, not including it. I I do think this thing gets through. Um, I do think they are making the right case. And and you played that clip from from David Weston's show earlier today with Jim Fiber, and I think he's making the right argument for Democrats. So I'm not sure they missed an opportunity. I think just listening to your conversation with Steve is the fact that 
as you and Steve both said, the idea of default is more real now, not just a downgrade in credit. And that is a very, very scary proposition. But I do think it'll be resolved. But I think this does showcase how entrenched Republicans have really gotten on this. We've always raised the debt ceiling. Democrats did it during Trump's administration. It's got to be raised. We can't play games with a the faith and credit of the United States. And yet McConnell has dug in on this issue, I think is very telling. And I think Democrats are right to make that case over and over. So then it's maybe in the continuing resolution uh, to fund the government here, Rick, although would there be votes for that? Do you scare away all the Republicans if you put the debt limit in there? Yeah, it's tricky, right? I mean, a continuing resolution needs 60 votes in the Senate, and uh, yeah, a clean continuing resolution probably gets that, right? They want to see the government continue to spend money. Uh, and uh, so, so yeah, I think that's a real complication. Uh, the minute that you really start to need Republican votes for anything, uh, you know, you got to listen to what Mitch McConnell's saying, and Mitch has been very clear. Uh, we're not going to have any votes for this debt ceiling increase. We did it in the in the republican administrations and you do it now in the democratic administration so uh look i i'm less convinced that there's going to be a default i don't think that there there hasn't been one and there's not going to be one i mean i we we talk breathlessly about the the consequences of that and this president especially knows uh what what that would be like i mean this is something more you would expect out of president trump who damn the Mm -hmm. consequences and you're going to get some politics out of it but there's no good politics that comes with a default I think you guys heard me mention with uh, Heather Boucher this letter that Nancy Pelosi sent to Democrats last night basically saying, you know, don't count your chickens here. This may not be as big as we think once the Senate parliamentarian gets involved. And we talked about this weeks ago. The Dreamers may not be in there. Immigration reform may not be in there. Climate related initiatives may not be in there. When do we start having a grown up conversation about deadlines then? If 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 this thing is not coming together for the rest of the year. What do the moderate Democrats, Jeannie, do about the bipartisan infrastructure plan that passed the Senate longer ago than I can count in terms of weeks? Remember, Josh Gottheimer said time kills deals. And he was right about that. And I think we know what they are doing and we've seen it. And you heard it in your conversation with the congressman. They are getting a bit freaked out by the fact that their jobs are on the line. And the Senate, we heard Joe Manchin over the weekend say over and over again, he wouldn't go to 3.5. Much of what they are arguing for is not going to be in that bill. And yet they are being pushed by their own leadership on the House side to vote for things that could very well walk them out of jobs. That's a very scary proposition. I think it's a non-starter for many of these moderates. And I think it's also dangerous for the Democratic Party because they need to hold the House or in order to need to hold the House. They need those moderate districts. So I think they've got to be very careful how they play this. And Nancy Pelosi is right. Much of that won't be in the bill. What then does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of these other progressives do with that? Well, that's boy. That is the question here, Rick. When, though, does Nancy Pelosi say, you know what, September 25th, not so much. Yeah, I think that twenty uh, seventh. I think Genie is spot on. I mean, these 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 uh, progressives uh, they didn't get Joe Biden elected. The moderates got Joe Biden elected, hmm. uh, and this was the criticism: is that he would become a captive of the progressive left of his party because they have all the activists and energy. And you see that playing out legislatively right now. If 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 Joe Biden took a deal with the moderates where he had a, a reconciliation bill of one billion, one trillion dollars and an infrastructure bill of a, a trillion dollars, he could sign those things today, probably. And and yet it's the progressive left that are driving him off a cliff financially 
that his own party won't support. So uh, I, I think Joe Biden's got to return to his roots and understand that he was elected as a moderate Democrat for president. He had a lot of progressives running against him and he beat them all. Mm. And and so uh, I, it, when you start looking at the 2022 midterms, without that uh, message, uh, I, I think the party just runs itself off the cliff. These, these progressives aren't going to lose their districts, but the moderates can and hmm. probably will if this continues down the road it's headed. Jeannie, uh, COVID came up in the president's address today and the vaccine uh, mandates that he rolled out recently. Another another shot across the bow of Republican governors. It was the Mississippi governor he was speaking about today and you know, making politics out of this. How much does this economic agenda, though, depend on getting over this pandemic and I don't know if you heard about this Nicki Minaj thing. Everybody's talking about Nicki Minaj today at the White House. Sent out an irresponsible tweet, apparently vaccine hesitant. White House reaches out to make a phone call. Is that what we should be doing, though? Bringing in celebrities like a Nicki Minaj, showing them learning about the vaccine and maybe having an impact on younger people? Yeah, I mean, my my head was spinning when I heard all this. So <laughs> I did hear about Nicki Minaj. And, um, you know, I, I think the White House is, is playing this right. She's got a huge, huge platform. If they could bring her in and if they could, you know, engage in conversation, that may be helpful with some of her followers and people who believe what she is posting and saying. But mm-hmm. to your earlier question, the pandemic is it for this president. It has to be resolved. Everything is connected with it, or at least we've got to be moving in the right direction and so he has got to push very hard on that the economy and everything else depends on us reopening that requires people being not just masked but vaccinated and that's why we see the president making this case and i think he's got to feel a little good about what happened in california because of course newsom survived and those mandates didn't come back to haunt him so democrats feeling a little bit better about that but you know the president this has got to be top on his agenda well, if he could lick COVID, uh, it would be a, a major benefit to the economy, Rick. Would it be too Trumpian to have Nicki Minaj come by the Rose Garden, get a shot? I, I wish you had not asked me a question about Nicki Minaj. <laughs> <laughs> you can Google who that is. That's all uh, right. I already did, and it's scaring me. <laughs> I want to be in the room with Rick right now as he explores. Uh, you know, look, I mean, it, it, as Jeannie said, I mean, like they look at this uh, referendum in California uh, yeah. the, and they say, wow, I mean, vaccines, we should force everybody to take one. This is good politics. And, and I think that, that if they didn't have these financial issues to, to struggle with within their own party, that's all they'd be talking about. Uh, and it would probably be good for the, the general health and wellness of the, of the country. So uh, there, there are some silver linings in this uh, Biden agenda. He did take a hard stand on this, and it paid off in California. And I think he's starting to look now at what other states like Virginia, which has got a governor's race coming up. Uh, where those kinds of things can can be important. I just noticed the Republican candidate is is got a vaccine ad out. So um, it's it's. I think you're seeing some political impacts in these things. How how does Nicki Minaj play? Well, you know, you're gonna have to have a Democratic strategist figure that well, out I was, for you. <laughs> I was a little disappointed. Nicki Minaj did not join the president today in the East Room. Didn't even appear at the press briefing with Jen Psaki. But she apparently was top of mind at the White House today. We heard about it all day following her tweet about hesitancy to the vaccine. She said she'd even wear pink if she went to the White House following a tweet in which she made these claims. Not good for the cause, but turns out she was not invited to the White House. They did offer her a phone call with a White House doctor. 
to be on that call. Mr. President, Mr. President, what kind of impact does it have when celebrities like Nicki Minaj share dubious claims? Uh, we offered a call uh, with Nicki Minaj. Let's go to the beach. Each, let's go get a wave. They say what they gonna say. Nicki Minaj has 22 million Twitter followers. Why not invite her to the White House, have a conversation, and make it a big public thing? I appreciate your recommendations on our communications advice. Karen, you are quite experienced. Uh, we offered a call uh, with Nicki Minaj uh, and one of our doctors to answer questions she had about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. In our outreach to celebrities, it follows a pretty standard process. We uh, officials who are working on these issues uh, and engage in regular conversations, offer to answer questions, offer to do that privately sometimes, sometimes it's done uh, publicly. Our hope is that anyone who has a big platform is going to project accurate information about the effectiveness of the vaccine. Thanks to Rick and Jeannie, the fastest hour in politics. We'll meet you back here tomorrow, the Friday version. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel, it's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.